Hello, hello. I'll give everyone a minute to come in. Happy Friday. It's a Friday. That, that's right. We are on a Friday. Inca. Oh, this is so funny. Shannon, I see you're here. And then Inca is here. And I was just listening to a podcast where Inca was talking with you, Shannon, and your co-host all about Reem. So it's like so weird to, I, like, I didn't expect to see you like right after I was listening to you. Um, <laughs> small world. This is a small world. Great to, great to have you here. Um, I'm going to, I, I want to ask like a quick poll. Did anyone have trouble getting in? I got a message from one person. They were having trouble, like the Eventbrite email glitched out. Is that true? Okay. If, if like no one else had it. Okay. Then maybe it was just like one person, but if it was like everyone, then I'd be like, Oh my God, what do I do? Um, I think we're good then. Okay, cool. Cool. No, you all didn't have trouble. Uh, good. Good. Uh, where's everyone calling in from? Where's everyone calling in from? I'd love to hear. Um, because I'll give it probably another minute or so before we officially start. Um, so some of you are wondering, like, like, or maybe you aren't wondering. Uh, some of you might just want the book now. Uh, so let me just send you the link to the book. Um, you can download it through BookFunnel. There's no email, anything like that required. So uh, you can read it uh, right here. And my goal today is not to like, well, yes, we're going to talk about the book. Yes, of course. We're going to talk about Creator Economy for Authors. But more importantly, I actually want to expand on what I talked about in the book and take it to the next level um, and really share kind of creator economy 2.0. But instead of 2.0 being out in the future, 2.0 being today, how we can take action and build our creator economy. So we'll, we'll get into that, but okay. We have two people back to back in London. That is really cool. We have Houston, California, Nebraska. Um, you wanna know what's behind me? Uh, I am in a like conference, like calling room at a university. So it's not, a, not anything special. Uh, technically, it's like a whole co-working space behind me. So that's where I am um, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts specifically. Um, that's where I'm calling in from. Uh, Italy, we have Danielle's Italy. Oh my God, I wish I was in Italy right now. Um, that sounds really awesome. Norway. Okay, we have people from all over. Norway, it's like kind of late in Norway and Italy, is it not? We're like maybe like eight or nine there. Romania, it's definitely late in Romania. Thank you for tuning in, uh, Maddie. Uh, yeah, okay, 9 p.m. I'm hearing. Wow, wow. Okay, awesome. So we're going to make this really interactive because it's supposed to be a conversation. Right now, y'all can't like turn on your mics and, and, and stuff like that, but we're going to like take that off in like just a few minutes. But I don't want to open up and talk to you. Like, I don't want to open up and talk at you all. I want to first hear like a question from you all, which is like, when you hear the word creator economy, what do you think? <laughs> do you not know what it is? You may have come to this and not even know what the creator economy is, which is like completely okay, by the way. It's this word that it's hard to actually pinpoint an actual definition. But when you hear the creator economy, what do you think? So very confused. Tori thinks of me. How sweet. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing, uh, but thank you. <laughs> um, so Elaine says very confused. I, I totally understand like the very confused. Um, unsure Kimberly's unsure okay um okay anyone anyone feel like they have an idea of what the creator economy is my third was, thought my first thought was that uh creativeness was like a type of money uh okay making products around yourself as an author and selling it I think that's I, I think that's a really good definition moving away from big corporations um unbalanced right now between tech giants individual creators I think I think there's I think these are all What's great is like that none of it's wrong. Like these are all great points about the creator economy. Um, and 
you know, what's interesting is that this was the, there's been many errors of the creator economy. The thing I'm stumbling around trying to do every day. That's, that's very, very true. An economy where the creators have control. Yes. I'll, 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 yes to all of this. Okay. I, I'm with you. I'm going to, I'm going to share my definition that I share in the book. And this is something I wrote like actually over a year ago now is when I wrote the book, I sat down to write this book, like before, like going all in on Reem. Well, I shouldn't say that we were already going all in, but you know what I mean? It was more like the reflective process of it. And my definition, I would say, I'm going to share with my, what my definition was. I'm going to share with you how I think about it now, because I think that it's somewhat changed. I know that sounds weird to say like the definition changed, but I think it's, it's evolved in a, in a healthy way, but essentially in short, the creator economy is a movement away from monolithic platforms. So big tech platforms think maybe some of the retailers, Facebook, et cetera, uh, to communities owned and led by creators. That's like the big broad movement. I'll give an example of it from the comedy space. So there's some people who um, have been funding their own specials. A good example of this who I'm actually a big fan of him, but if he's controversial, I'm sorry, Matt Reif. Uh, I, I don't know, people, you must have seen it. Who's seen his TikToks? Has anyone seen Matt Reif's TikTok? Potentially. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Matt Reif's super funny. No, okay, he's a very funny comedian and he's like blown up on TikTok in the last like year. Okay, you watch a lot of, I'm, I'm with you, Ariel. Okay, Shelby. Okay, so a few people know who I'm talking about. So Matt Reif, like he's at the level where like, I'm sure I, I can't speak for it. Actually, I can. I think he's mentioned it before that like Netflix is approaching to do a special. You know, he's he's at that level. He he, he could pull in an audience to a, a streamer. But if you go search up Matt Reif on YouTube, you'll find all of his specials on YouTube. They were essentially crowdfunded by his audience who directly supported him through his website and by buying his merch and, and things of that nature. So he hasn't needed to ever work with a big corporation. He did it to himself. He sold directly to his audience. So he, that is very cool. And what he did actually for it was made it free. I'll give you another example. Um, does anyone know Yes Theory? The YouTube channel, Yes Theory. This is maybe more of a, more of like, okay, okay. We got we got one person who, who knows Yes Theory. Um, yes Theory is like a very popular YouTube channel. Um, and I think they're a wonderful YouTube channel. And they recently had a movie uh, that they made called The Iceman. And they also did that movie. They had a, a million dollar plus streaming deal to put it on one of the streamers. And they said, no, they turned around to their audience. They were able to actually not only sell the show directly to them, but also cut out, cut a deal directly with the movie theaters to actually have a deal where the movies, the movie I think played in like maybe a dozen or so movie theaters across North America. And that was like, individual creators doing this okay really really cool here's the thing when i talk about someone like matt rife when i talk about someone like yes theory first of all they're not authors so we're like what like this isn't this isn't us and then two they're like huge like like it, it feels like oh well if i had 10 million tiktok followers i'm sure i could you know have my own movie i'm sure i could you know go direct to my audience and create you know, this big budget film but what i'm going to argue is that that's changing and that you today, in today's world of the creator economy, powered by the new technologies, are able to do more and build almost like your own mini amusement park around your readers. 
that you couldn't possibly do five, 10 years ago. And this world that we're moving into opens up more opportunity in the long tail of publishing, which what am I talking about with the long tail of publishing? So before I go further into the creator economy, I want to first talk about the elephant in the room, about how publishing works. And this was not something I went super deep into in the book, because it's something that I've reflected on so much more over the past year. But I first want to ask a question, and I'll have the answers in the chat, which is, Raise a hand or put a yes in the chat if you would like to be a full-time author. Who feels like they want to be a full-time author? So we have a yep, yes. We have a lot of yeses. There's not even a lot. Of, okay, yeah, great. Okay, I have an I am. I was like, Tori, you're jumping ahead to my next question. I'm not mad at you, not at all. So out of the people who all just said yes, 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 who is a full-time author? So we have quite a few. That doesn't surprise me because the people who tend to listen to what we're, we're, we're creating pretty more advanced material here, okay? So that doesn't surprise me. But at the same time, we all know that there's a lot more people who want to be full-time authors than are full-time authors. And that's not necessarily because the people who aren't full-time authors aren't great writers or aren't writing stories that people want to have. It's partially because this thing that Joe Solari talks a lot about in a book called Advantage, which I recommend you read, um, but I'm going to dive into it my own little take here, which is this concept of a power law, which is how books ultimately are distributed throughout the economy. Because if we're going to talk about the creator economy in the context of authors, how books are sold and read is the, that is the foundation of it. And we're going to get into monetization, right? And subscriptions for authors, we talk a lot about how to monetize, how to build deep relationships with your fans, right? But I think the one thing we all feel is that discovery is important too. We want to distribute to new fans. What does that look like in the age of the creator economy? Yes, Toria, the book's called Advantage. Um, it's a great book. Um, it's it's really, really good. And what it's about, this concept of advantage, is the players at the top in publishing and how much of it they actually agglomerate in terms of the market share. And what you see is that the top 1% of authors don't have 1% of the sales. It's not like distributed that way. We're like, it's like, you know, everyone gets 1% of sales. We're not, we're not equal in that way. And the top 1% of authors don't even get about 50% of the sales. They're much closer to 70% of the sales. And that's not, that's a great for, for these authors who are there. And some of you listening might be there and I don't want you to feel guilty at all. Like that's a beautiful thing. Like that's, this is amazing to be there. But what I recently did in the last year, since I wrote this book, cause I get, I wanted to promise you all insights. I know some of you have already read the book. So if you read the book and you're here, I want to give you stuff that I just didn't put in the book, which is about how power laws look different among different forms of media and why. And this goes back to the psychology sociology and economics of how we discover books, which in turn goes into how we should think about marketing books as authors. Okay. So when we look at power laws in different types of industries, I want to first look at something like YouTube. YouTube. Then we're going to look at TikTok. Then we're going to look at music. Then we're going to go to books and movies. And we're going to see something really, really interesting. So uh, YouTube, before YouTube Shorts, talking about like Lord, when they were really focused just on long form video, um, they roughly 
had about 10, 20,000 channels with over a million subscribers, a lot. But in terms of the number of active YouTube channels, there was tens of millions. And then you had very few people who had over 10 million subscribers, right? Um, when TikTok came around, when TikTok came around, the number of TikTok channels that were able to surpass a million followers blew through the number of, of YouTube channels that had a million subscribers in a fraction of the time. And meanwhile, the attention spent on both platforms is quite similar. So reach on TikTok was easier. Discovery was easier on TikTok. But we could talk about why that is. We'll get there. Movies, right? Movies are something that you don't have a lot of these movies that are even able to be produced, right? So it's very interesting when you look at movies and then compare it to something like YouTube or TikTok, all video. Movie is like, <laughs> there's, not, there's not a million movies produced a year. There just isn't. There, there's a much smaller amount. But what's interesting is if you look at movies compared to YouTube, the top movies drive even more of the economic value than the top YouTubers. The power law is skewed even more, where the top top movies are, are even more powerful in terms of where it's compared to the long tail than the rest, okay? Books are very similar. Books are very similar. Books are very, very skewed to the top. But why? Why is it? that authors at the top have such an advantage. You might be wondering like, like, hmm, like that is interesting, right? So I think there's two reasons. I don't know, no one knows, okay? But I, I think there's two reasons because it's about how networks form. And contrary to popular belief, the internet has only exacerbated this effect. Like in the age of the internet, the big hits are bigger than ever in the book world. Best example of this is Colleen Hoover. Whether you love or hate her books, I think what she's done is phenomenal in terms of what she's accomplished. But I mean, what a phenomena. I mean, Colleen Hoover alone was boosting up the profits basically entirely of a major publisher where they had to have the CEO say, we're not going to have Colleen Hoover's book sell like this ever, so you can't expect these profits forever. Visibility is part of it, but there's something even more, even more important, which is books have a really high psychological cost to start reading. When you go look at it, a lot of us probably consume TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, other media formats. Think about how effortless it is to start watching a TikTok video. Did you even make that decision yourself? Probably, I mean, you, you probably got fed to it by an algorithm. Some of us might be addicted to our phones and we're just mindlessly scrolling we find the next video. Whereas the book, how oftentimes have you just mindlessly picked up and started reading another a, a new book without knowing what it was? You've probably very rarely done that. Very rarely. Maybe you've found a TikTok that then brought you into this, which will start to get to my point here in a little bit about discovery. Books have extremely high friction. Because there's two reasons for that. One is that books are longer, right? There's a bigger investment of time. So to actually read through a book, it's like, you know, five to 10 hours, maybe on average. That, that's a lot. Right? So in terms of the entertainment cost in someone's life, that's a huge investment. But if we look at something like a TikTok, it's 15 seconds. So that, right, there's a lot more friction. But there's also another thing the amount of time that it takes to get immersed into the narrative of a story. Even the best writers in the world, 
and even the, your favorite books ever, it probably took you a few pages to fully get hooked into the story. And that doesn't sound like a lot, and it needs to be quick, especially in today's world. But that's still a few minutes. It's a few minutes of time, the investment of, I need to have this space to get hooked into the book. I can't just pick up my phone and scroll. I have to have at least even a minute of time to get into the book. That makes discovery so much different because in a high friction environment, our brains have to rely more on social signals, social signals about what's doing well. So that's why book reviews matter. Book reviews do matter. I mean, like people care about them, readers read them. How often have you read a review of a TikTok before deciding to watch it? Or a YouTube video or a Twitch stream? <laughs> Probably pretty rarely. <laughs> Those things don't have reviews. How often have you... Yes, there's word of mouth in other discovery formats. I'm not going to ever dissuade you from that. But how often do you take a book recommendation from a friend? And you're like, wow, this is really, this was great. Versus like a silly TikTok recommendation. It's just different, right? There's different levels to it. This is why when you get your book going and you get word of mouth going for your book, it's the like the it's one of the coolest things in the world because it's a very high friction thing. Once your fans are in, they're into your stories. And that's where this whole world of the creator economy opens up of your super fans. But here's the the interesting part about publishing. What we learned is that because of the internet age in this networked economy, we're all online now. We all can see what other people are reading, what other people are talking about. So that means that social effects are more amplified than they've ever been. So there's actually more opportunity for us to get discovered than ever. There might be more content than ever, but that doesn't matter. There's more opportunity to get discovered. That's like the coolest thing ever. The only downside is that in, an op in a world in which everyone's online, everyone's seeing these social signals, we're only going to have a very few number of people who are at the tippity-tippity-top, which means there's a lot of room, this long tail of thousands and thousands of people who are still doing really well, but, but, the business model looks different because if you are someone like a Colleen Hoover, you can make more than enough money off of book royalties to be uh, okay. And your kids' kids and your kids' kids will be okay too. But for a lot of us, just making a living off of book royalties is challenging because this long tail of the creator economy, the function of a power law is that you'll have a few people capturing a lot of the value, which means everyone else is capturing a little less of the value. This doesn't mean economically, this means in terms of attention, right? If that's the math behind how this networked creator economy works, then that means there's a lot of us, this middle class of authors, we'll call it the middle class. But this middle class kind of can struggle. And I think we can all know that feeling, right? Of like every month fighting for our royalties, fighting to get the next book out because like we have to, like, this is, this is a tough industry, but I think the creator economy presents a solution to this on both fronts, just a different way of thinking about it. And I'm going to take you through the 10 steps of the creator economy, 10 steps of how to build your creator economy. It'll be very, very actionable. Okay. I want to get the foundation out of the way. And what we'll learn, what we'll learn is that your super fans are more important than they've ever been because if we understand that in the age of the creator economy, there's this networked way in which we discover books, 
and social signals are more important than ever. Yes, that makes our communities important. But what that also means is that making a living from five, 10,000 readers is really important and it's possible. But that also means that we're gonna have a few of those fans who are gonna be also so attached to our books that they're willing to pay us more and be more involved in our worlds. That is the core concept of the creator economy. How do we find these fans and how do we bring them into our worlds? Now, some people were talking about like owning your platforms. Some people were talking about being able to sell directly to your audience, things like that. I think the difference between the creator economy and the platform economy and why it's so powerful in the book world is because we live in such a high friction world to discover books. Authors hold so much power, so much power. And a platform like TikTok, it's unrealistic to say that TikTokers rule the world. I know that, that sounds almost pessimistic, but the, the algorithm carries so much weight there, so much weight and so much the trust is put into the feed and the continuing scroll that the system is designed to limit trust, like limit connection between creator and individual viewer. That keeps a platform like TikTok powerful. But the nature of books, the psychology of books makes it so that when someone's into your book and it's hard to get them into your book, we might even have to rely on platforms to try and get discovery. But once they're into your book, you've accomplished one of the hardest things ever, which is getting someone to be in your story world. And that's why we do say that storytellers, because it's totally true. And we have the power as authors, right, to build our own platforms because we, we have that amount of trust in our audience. That is huge. That is huge. And what that allows us to do is own our own network so that we can see who our super fans are and serve them so that we can create better experiences for them that not only help us generate more revenue, but keep our fans more loyal. Because as we'll discover, not all attention or distribution is created equal. In this networked world where there's millions and millions of social signals that we're all experiencing constantly, it's not about the number of signals, but the strength and quality of the signal. Meaning, to have 100 super strong fans is better than a list of 10,000 people who barely know who you are and barely know what your stories are. That so, should be some of the most inspiring things to authors who are just getting started because a few fans can cause a wildfire, but also it should be inspiring to authors like many of you here who already are full-time because you probably already have those core fans. So how do we serve them? How do we know who they are? And how do we power discovery even more? That's the creator economy. So let's back it up into 10 steps now. Because my book has 10 chapters and it's a long read. And most of you don't have time to read a full nonfiction book. I, I know how it works. We don't, we don't, we, we get these books, we want to read them, but we don't actually read them. So I want to share with you everything about the creator economy in 10 steps in like, let's call it 15 minutes. And then the rest of this talk is just going to be open for conversation. Um, and yes, I think questions like what is considered a super fan, we should debate because um, that's a word that we throw around a lot. But what is a super fan? That's like, honestly, a lot, lot, lot to it. So step one of the creator economy is understanding what the creator economy is. And for our purposes, the creator economy is building your platform as an author. We're moving from the platform economy to the creator economy. And the creator economy is building your platform. Whatever that means, we're going to discover. We're going to discover. So now step two is figuring out who is your platform for. 
Who is your platform for? When I ask you that question, what would be your answer? And that, that's like not rhetorical. I'd be curious to hear your answer in the chat, especially for authors who are like our full time. Like, who are you writing for? You might be writing for multiple different kinds of people too, which is like completely valid. The reader. Readers who love romance but want the lightness of a rom-com. Different for fiction and nonfiction, right? It's, I would say for fiction and nonfiction is kind of similar in terms of like, who who are your readers? Like it's still like, who are you? You would answer it a little bit differently, I think, because you might be solving a problem that's more concrete for nonfiction, whereas for fiction, you might be more solving an emotional need for someone, but you're still solving something in someone's life. Okay, this is this is good. And I just like to share. So these are these, this is, this is interesting. I think this is like the most important question is who is your platform for? Because as we're going to discover, when you build your own platform and you want to extend it beyond books, having like a core understanding of who your platform's for allows you to build additional experiences around it because you understand who your readers are. And it's not like a, a one-time thing. We're all, always rediscovering and discovering who we are and who our readers are. So I think it's a constant reflective question, but who is your platform for? And I agree. I think it is more about psychographics than demographics, without a doubt. Um, and I think that in addition to psychographics, I think economics are important. I think sociographics are important. What communities are they part of, right? Um, what what, what, where are they at in their life? Is it a bunch of college students or are we talking about a bunch of people who are retired? Um, very different, you know, economic profiles, very different stages of life. Um, now, why do I ask who is your platform for? Because it's a lie that we just build our own platform. Complete lie. Because in reality, in a networked world, right, where everyone is a part of a platform or multiple platforms, whether it's following multiple authors, whether it's in a reader X, reader here, you can't just grow a platform and be like, this is my platform. I, and, and then we're done. We have to go to other places. We have to basically tap into other networks to discover new readers. And that's a really important point about the creator economy. And that's step three. So step one is what is the creator economy? It's building your own platform. Step two. Step two is just who is your platform for? Which I think thinking about it along the lines of genre can be really important. These are all really good, useful tools. There's no right or wrong answer, but it's important to reflect on. Number three is where do people who are already, you know, who your platform's for, what other platforms are they a part of? And I mean that Sometimes in the most literal sense, and sometimes in a figurative sense. In a literal sense, I mean this like, okay, if you're a science fiction author, which I love science fiction and I write science fiction books, maybe maybe Radish is not the platform for you because your readers probably aren't on Radish. Like that's, I sometimes mean that literally. And I sometimes mean that figuratively. Like my readers probably would be a part of a platform following on a newsletter list of an author like a Neil Stephenson or an Elliot Pepper or an E.G. Riddle, or I can go and list probably a hundred. That's not what I'm doing today, but but that's the point, right? I have that idea of who my readers would be and where they would be hanging out. 
that is so important in the world of the creator economy because when we talk about something like direct sales, um, I I think direct sales is a useful concept. Direct sales is an aspect of the creator economy. But if you're just selling direct and you have no way to power discovery, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, your website just sits there. That's not what we want to do. We want to actually get new readers. So we have to first figure out where they are. Okay. That's step three. Step four is asking yourself, what relationship do I have to have with a new reader? How am I introducing myself to a new reader? That's a that's an important question to ask in the book. And I'm going to talk about this with all of you because I don't want to like go into content creation haphazardly. I want to go in directions that I know will be useful to you. But there's like 90 pages in the book where I break down different content platforms and different ways in which you can get discovery through TikTok, short form text, blogging, video, et cetera. So you want to ask yourself, how is someone going to be introduced to you? Because here's where we go back to my rants in the beginning around friction. If you just put your book out there on a wall, no one's going to care. That sounds really harsh, but it's true. And we know it because if you put your book on the Amazon wall and you do nothing, you will have no readers. You will just sit at a million, 10 million in the store. And that'll be it. We've all know that experience. Like, like I remember when I first published my book, it was now six years ago. I like thought like I would just put it out on Amazon and that people would buy my book. I was so naive then. I just didn't know. I mean, cause how would you know? You're just getting started. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna put it up there and I'm gonna get all these sales. And like, that's gonna be like the coolest one ever. And I put it up there and there was nothing. It was crickets. And that's not because again, your book is bad or, or that no one will ever read your book. It's quite the opposite. It's that we've learned that books are a high friction media format, like unbelievably high friction. And instead of throwing our hands up and being like, oh my God, this is hard. We have to use that to our advantage. So we can use that to our advantage on the back end. We'll get to these steps seven through 10 about once we've gotten them in, how we can keep them there. But at first we have to realize how do we get them in? And the answer is simple. You have to go to something that's low low friction. You have to you have to somehow get them into something to build trust in something that's lower friction than a book. Because if you just put a book on a wall, how often is someone going to just going to sit by and read it? If you've ever put your book in, in a local independent bookstore, you realize that fact that unless the book is literally up at the front of the store, staring them in the face, and publishers pay good money for those shelf spots, there's a good chance it just sits on the shelf. That doesn't mean that books don't get discovered. They just don't get discovered on shelves. They get discovered through conversations, right? Because it's a high friction media format. So ultimately, how can you create a conversation around your book? How can you create a conversation around you? That is a very reflective question, but you want to ultimately go back to, how do you want readers to be introduced to who you are? Because they might get introduced to your book through a friend, but until you get that word of mouth where their introduction to your book is through a friend, you're going to have to do that introduction. This is where, you know, oftentimes authors pay to reduce friction, but Facebook obviously has created um, a really low friction way to reach people. Like they tr at least try through an ad to make it easy for people to click and discover new things, but you're paying for that, right? You're paying for that. There's nothing wrong with paying for advertising. I've spent well over $10,000 myself in ads, but there's other ways to think about it too. TikTok is another way to think about it. There is something like 
posting on Instagram, there's YouTube videos, there's podcasts. I mean, we can go down the list, but that's step four is figuring out what is the low friction way I'm going to reach my audience. Sometimes, and I almost think a little incorrectly, people think that serial fiction platforms are the answer to that. And it sometimes is, but we do have to go back to this idea that books are extremely high friction. And I think if any of you here, and I know some of you here, I've tried putting your books on something like a Wattpad. I know some of you have done it. A lot of times there'll be crickets there too. And it's not, again, because of you. Wattpad explicitly says one of the best ways to gain traction on Wattpad is by promoting your book on Instagram, <laughs> which I, we hate to hear that as writers. We hate to hear that. But, but it's like, no, if we think about the psychology of how someone discovers a book, people don't pick up books out of the wild. They pick up books out of the networks they already trust, okay? So to review again, because now we're at step four. Step one, creator economy is building your own platform. We all get it, beautiful. Two, now that you've built your own platform, you need to figure out who's your platform for, okay? Step three, now knowing who your platform's for, where are those readers hanging out? Which platforms are those readers engaging in? Sometimes in a literal app platform, it could be an in-person platform, like a convention. Lots of different ways you can take that word, that definition of the word platform. And step four, which we just went over, a very important step. How do you want your readers, now knowing who your readers are and now knowing which platforms they might hang out in, how do you want to be introduced to them? Because yes, if you are a senior romance author, I can guarantee you there's people in your audience who are on TikTok. But if TikTok is not the place that you want to introduce yourself to your readers, maybe you shouldn't, right? Maybe you shouldn't. And that's okay. That doesn't, that's nothing against you because there's lots of different platforms you can utilize. Step five is now we've done a lot of reflection. Like if you've done this correctly, you now have a web of here are where my readers hang out and here are the different things I could do to engage with them. You kind of have like this map of ideas of marketing and distribution, okay? That's beautiful. But now get uncomfortably focused. Step five is pick one. Not pick two, not pick three. Step five is pick one. I'm trying to make this actionable for everyone, okay? Actionable. Pick one. Pick one. One platform and one way you want to introduce yourself to, to new readers. I guarantee you almost everyone here has more than one way they're doing this, which is sounds fine. But if we go back to our concept, it, discovery to work, discovery. So for, for new readers, one way to go find new readers. Because I want to kind of lay out all the 10 steps, right? From like, if we're getting started to how do we now grow a super fan business? So we're only at step five. We got five more steps. We got five more steps. But we'll, we'll get to the existing readers, right? We have to get existing readers first. So step five, pick one platform. Now we're going to go back to my fundamental. This is why I had my rant in the beginning. Every step goes back to that learning. We learned that authors at the top accrue basically a very outsized portion of the value. But it's not fair to just categorize it as all authors because that's a useless market. Like all authors, no one writes for all readers. We have a little bit more specific than that. So let's take a power law curve of every genre. If you were to tally up everyone who writes, let's say, why choose romance um, or maybe urban urban fantasy, just picking, I mean, we could go down and pick any subgenre. And you were to basically find every author who's ever written those kinds of stories. And you did a little census and you asked them what their income was. You would see a very similar power law. 
to this broader power law that I'm talking about. Well, there's a few authors who are making most of the money. And there's a lot of people in the middle because there's that power law and a lot of people who aren't there yet. Okay. So what that then teaches us too is that that power law extends beyond, beyond just genre, but into other definitions, other planes. What am I talking about? What I'm talking about is platforms. So you have an outsized benefit to going all in on one discovery pathway because getting to the top of one different discovery platform, whatever that means in your, in, in your readership, right? Your power law that you're going after is going to be a lot more beneficial than being halfway on three because the rewards are outsized to the people at the top. And why that is, is because how we discover books are through social networks. They're through social signals of other people. And when you can become the it thing in a community, you're going to see an outsized benefit. Does that make sense to people? Because I feel like when we think about marketing, we don't think about it from like first principles basis. And what I'm trying to do is the first five steps of the creator economy are like foundational book marketing stuff. But, but now if you've picked one platform, we're going to assume that you dominate it. And that's not how it works. And we're going to get to that's not how it works and we'll be able to tweak these things. But step six, step six, it now assumes we've crossed the chasm. And many of you have crossed the chasm at this point where you now have fans. You have existing readers. That's huge. You've already accomplished half of the steps of the creator economy. So most of you are going to just skip the first half of this talk, but I think it's still useful for people to hear because frankly, we always want and need more fans too. I mean, like from a pure biological standpoint, we need new readers because some readers go to the storyline forever, right? So now we're on to the stuff that you probably hear me spend most of my time talking about. Um, but I want to lay out the five steps because we normally talk about it just in the context of subscriptions. And that's great, but there's more than just subscriptions out there. And the creator colony recognizes that. And these next five steps are all about decreasing overwhelm, decreasing overwhelm and helping you to take actual steps towards making money. So my idea right now when saying these five steps is not to go out and list all the different platforms and ways you can get discovered or all the different ways that you can go out and get monetization. If you want all the different ways, you can go and read the book. I list a lot, okay? It's a little overwhelming. I'm here to tell you the takeaways, which the takeaway, step six, is you have your existing readers now, okay? We've gotten to that point. What is something that you could do or provide them? And it doesn't have to be an actual thing. We'll, we'll talk about that. But what is something you could do to enhance their experience as a reader of yours? Step six is just figuring one thing out. Depends. It could be a lot of different things that you do. We talk about a lot of that. Early access, special editions of books. You could do just supporting you and the the, the value of opening up a space where readers can give back to you reciprocally. That gives someone a psychological value, which is a very, very fancy way of saying, you know, you could just have a tip jar. Is that optimized for anything? No, it's, it's not optimized for generating you income in the creator economy, but it's worthwhile noting, okay? You could have an exclusive series, bonus content. You could do merch. You could do swag. You could, I mean, 
You could do CPG lines. What I mean by that is consumer packaged goods. Uh, this is where like knowing who your readers are back in step two is really important because you can start to figure out what are the other things they need in their life. Because step six is all about building your actual business. What do I mean by that? Like all these ways in which we're discovering and bringing new fans in, like a lot of it's on rented land by kind of nature, like even in like some sort of utopia in which you leave the platforms, you're still going to have to go out there and get readers who aren't yet in your platform. You don't own their customer data yet. You don't have a direct relationship with them. And that's not a bad thing, but there's always going to be a compromise you make when you're tapping into other networks, rules you have to abide by, norms, potentially effort you have to give in. And these depend on the networks you're tapping into, right? Like if you're tapping into networks of fellow authors and their readers, this is traditionally what we call swaps. You probably don't think about it the way I'm thinking about it, but if you think about it that way, which I think is important, then obviously if you just like are super transactional and swaps to other authors, not targeting your swaps well um, both ways, you're going to end up, that's not going to be good. You're going to have to put effort into making that work. And that means ultimately giving up maybe some time, maybe some freedom. And, and for some people that's, worth it in that specific path. Other people want to put their time in other places and give up other kinds of freedom. Maybe that means having Amazon take all of your customer data. Maybe that like which is maybe that means Amazon taking a higher royalty rate and jamming up ads on top of it. Maybe you know what I mean? Whatever it is, but like you're making that compromise to get that discovery, which is when we get to step six, right? Which is now now we're ready to think how what can I do to provide more to build that direct relationship with my readers. Then step seven is what it literally is just the question of how do I want to monetize this relationship? Do I want this to be some sort of crowdfunded thing that I do? That would, you know, Kickstarter is pretty much the, the, the main thing people do with that. Do I want it to be a subscription relationship where I'm going to be, you know, sharing something with my fans and whatever this thing is that I'm creating probably has a continual nature to it. Maybe it's a short story a month. Maybe it's early access to your new books as you write them. There's a sort of ongoing relationship there. Maybe it's a la carte where you have something like merch on your website. They could just go and buy. There's no need for a subscription, no sort of crowdfunding campaign. The beauty of this is that you can layer on different monetization tactics and strategies as we go forward. But for this first step seven, we want to focus on one way to monetize. Obviously, we focus most on subscriptions for authors. And I think there's a lot of benefits to that because there's nothing to me better than making, you know, even if just $5, consistent $5 a month is, is really meaningful. But with that said, there's other pathways to utilize and advanced authors in the creator economy are utilizing multiple down the line. But that doesn't matter because at first you have to start with something, right? Now we're on to step eight, which is you have to share that offer with your existing audience in a compelling way. Because you're basically saying, hey, readers, you've probably read some of my books. Some of you might love my books. Some of you might kind of like my books. But frankly, once your reader discovers your story, the story pulls all of the weight. Your, your story is what matters there. And that's why the best writers can have the most fervent fans. And that's just... That's that's amazing. That's why writing is the most important thing in this industry. And it definitely always will be, even in the age of the creator economy. But step eight is saying, 
Well, you need to, we know that based on step six and seven, to build our creator economy, to build our platform, we have to extend our relationship with our readers. We need to build a direct relationship with them. We can sell directly to them, have their emails, but also expand our revenue streams so that we can build a business that is dependent on our relationship with our readers and not another network's relationship with our readers. Because it's not the creator economy, that's the platform economy, right? We want to take that control. So step eight is actually a step where we get to do some stealing like an artist and look at what the other platforms do, whether it's the platform in context of authors, context and platform of a KU, and see how did they convince people to join their network? How did they convince them to become a direct customer of theirs? And what you see, what you see is that there's some pretty foundational tactics that these networks use to get people over the edge, to make the jump to something new. And frankly, this is what our struggle is as authors when we try and build a direct relationship with our readers. Readers are readers have a direct relationship already with the retailers, not all of them, but many of them. Or they have a direct relationship with the social media platforms, or they have a direct relationship with the fictional platforms. That depends on the platforms, but that's what they have the direct relationship with. So there's less friction when you're operating within that environment. Less friction is a good thing for discovery. We want to utilize that because books are really high friction. And when there's a lot of friction, no one's going to go in it. We need to decrease that friction so it becomes a no-brainer for the reader. Obviously, good covers, good copies to that. But the, the environment of a retailer that they're used to does pull weight. It, of course it does. We all know that. We're all secretly scared of that. And it's true. We It's something we need to think about. And I know many people struggle when they have an audience who's used to engaging with them in a specific way on rented land, frankly, on, on a network that you don't own, but you've now utilized that space correctly for discovery and you're trying to build your own network. The question then is like, how do I do this? How do I bring them over? And step eight answers them with three core tactics. And it's the tactics that the retailers use. And it's just the tactics that we have to use ourselves because we never had to do it because we were operating within their own network. But now we have to operate in our own network. And with that, I want us to think really carefully about how we can frame things in a way that makes things a no-brainer for readers to take the jump. Decrease the friction as much as possible for them. I'm going back to that word friction because it's so important. So important. If your reader already is used to reading your books on Amazon, already pays five dollars a month, they might want the extra thing that you have. Just like people want to read good books. I'm not saying that your book on the wall is going to get no readers because no one wants to read it. It's because there's too much friction. It's the same thing oftentimes when we, when we look at an author's subscription. And when I see author subscriptions who are underperforming, a lot of times it goes back to this question of, well, like, hmm, it's not that you need more benefits. It's not that you need to change your pricing. Is that there's too much friction here getting your readers into it. So how can we decrease that? One, making something limited time. Tell me in the chat if you've ever bought something on a limited time deal or a limited time frame that's going to expire. Tell me if you've done it all the time. Yes. Of course. Thumbs up. I know it seems simple. But we're in the retail industry at the end of the day. That's what books traditionally have been in. Um, that's what it typically operates in, a retail-like model. Kind of unique to be a media business and a retail business at the same time. But the media business has mostly been driven by ads, um, right? That's a lot of the revenue that they get. Um, and in the book industry, I, I don't know an author who gets paid 
to run ads, we 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 instead pay for advertising, which we pay for shelf space, which is kind of where media and um, retail have some, some differences. I will argue that <laughs> that uh, the creator economy is shifting those dynamics and making this a little bit more like a media business traditionally, but that, like we can really, that's like getting into the weeds of things I stay up at night thinking about. The, the point is, the point is that retail is driven in Q4. That's like when most of the money's made, including Amazon, including books. We all know what ad prices look like in Amazon and Facebook, even in the book space, when we get into Q4, which is coming up. That's because that's when they run all the big promotions, right? That's when they run all the big promotions. I guess what I'm suggesting is oftentimes when I see authors actually go to move their own platform, it's this haphazard thing of like, I was thinking about it and now we're here and maybe you should join, but you probably shouldn't because I don't even know what I'm doing with this. I don't, I don't really feel like I'm worth $5 a month. This is going to close in two weeks. You better make this move now to get over to my platform because this won't be around. That works really, really well. Limited time. What's another thing? Discounts. I'm going to have a caveat here, but this is what we see direct sales people already teach all the time. Um, the bundle. Who here has been interested in direct sales and has listened to people you know, go on and on about bundling their books? Does anyone know what I'm talking about when I say that? Someone say in the chat if you do or don't, because I don't, I, I don't want to like dive into the weeds or something, but my bundles always, yeah, there we go. Jamie's saying it. Everywhere, LOL. Yes, yes. So much time listening to the direct bundles. Okay, okay, cool, cool. They're onto something there. They're onto something because the bundle is a way to basically effectively create a discount, right? That's what you're doing. Um, and that's a, a second way of doing it. Um, the caveat to that is that um, you want to use psychological pressure to get, get people over the edge, um, but luxury brands never discount themselves. Luxury brands are based off around limited time drops for the most part. So they're not discounting their drops though. So that's one thing to remember in terms of like the brand that you're building. Um, and there's nothing wrong with building a brand that's like a discount-based brand. Um, but luxury brands typically have much more enterprise value than discount-based brands. In fact, discount-based brands can be erased the bottom oftentimes. So that's like my one caveat, like in the long run, like, uh, you know, building your brand is really important and discounts can devalue your brand. It just, we see it in the real world, right? Um, the third thing, right? So these are simple tactics, but we don't have to think about them. Limited time, bundle. The last thing, and I know we've heard people talk about this, but it's so important, is make something exclusive. What's a good example of making something exclusive? I'll give an obvious example, because it's the biggest and tried and true one, is merch but not authors doing merch, although that's picking up. How YouTubers were able to build a direct relationship with their audience, and actually a lot of them drove most of their business doing this, was selling merch. You couldn't buy merch on YouTube, so the reader, the, the viewer in this case was willing to go through the extra friction to go to another place, to enter that in, because they wanted that merch so badly. It was a unique experience they could only get on that site. And also, it didn't harm discovery on the YouTube platform, because we all know the problem of like, it sounds really nice to make all of your eBooks exclusive to your direct store or exclusive to your subscription, but these are the same things that we're kind of licensing in a, I'll sometimes think a, almost a devil's bargain, but a, a bargain we have to make with other players and other networks to get new readers. That's not very exclusive and that's okay. That's okay, but we, we want to think about that component. So limited time, discounts slash bundling and exclusive. 
I know those like there's not supposed to be groundbreaking concepts, but how many of you actually do that? Like and like when you're launching your subscription specifically, how many people have really utilized those tactics? I want to say probably very few because I haven't seen it much, but maybe you all here have. So I think that might be helpful. Step nine is actually the last step because step 10 is fun. And we're going to get to that. And then I promise we'll get to questions. I've been going on longer than I thought. Um, I like had like 10 steps that are supposed to be short and succinct. And then they've turned into this. But I get excited, right? Step nine, okay? Step nine is the most important step of all, which is now that you've brought someone to your platform, huge accomplishment, by the way. How do you keep them there? How do you keep them there? Because in the world of the creator economy, we're not going to be living in a world where people are just fans of one creator. I mean, like that would be like so weird. Like I'm, well, I shouldn't say so weird. I get it. But like, if I drop my entire identity to just love one author, only one author's books, it's probably unrealistic, even if we feel that urge sometimes, because we want to read more books, we want to get more stuff, and we're going to have multiple authors that we participate in their platforms. That's such a great thing, by the way, because I think and I don't want to like throw out any sort of like long-term hypothesis because again, I'm keeping this grounded and focused on what you can do today. That was the whole mission. But I, I don't think because story tells the world and because we are building our own platforms that one day we'll be able to rely more on each other and our own networks that we've built rather than, you know, retailers, other platforms that we have to almost make a devil's bargain with. I feel like we can work together better than we can work with other third parties who might want to be taking advantage of us. That's just, just me and that's more of a hope, but to get to the point of step nine, the real point is you want to keep someone there, right? And this is where we get to retention tactics because I could go on this whole little rant of like, yeah, super fans matter and like get out there and get on your camera and like, you know, do what Christopher, I love you, Christopher Hopper, if you're like in the audience right now, but like Christopher Hopper like made a post like about like him creating like a video for his readers in the Facebook group, which like I love, like I think it's amazing, but like we don't all look as good as you, Christopher. So like, you know, I, I know I don't have, have that man's eyes. So we, we have to, you know, we have to play to our own strengths and maybe that's not going on camera, but what does that, what does that mean though? Because you need to retain your readers. Someone like Christopher is retaining his readers by building an unbelievable relationship with them. A really, really deep parasocial relationship, which I talk about in depth in the book. Do, do, do you need to do that? No, of course you don't need to do that. But what I will argue is, are that there are some core retention tactics that we can all do. And it goes back to one thing, one core concept which is making someone feel cared for. If you can do that, when someone comes to your platform and you make them feel cared for, they will stick with you. Think about the businesses and the people you interact with who make you feel like you matter. The sad part is that you might have to actually think about it and you might not be able to count them on more than one hand because that's where the world's at today. We've become so obsessed with numbers, so obsessed with algorithms and exploiting other people's networks that we have forgotten about nurturing our own. And I'm not accusing us as authors of doing this. I think other industries are far, far worse. And like, we feel it, right? How many times do you go sit down in a restaurant and you feel like, wow, like I felt like they were just trying to spit me out. Like I was just another reader, just another page read. That's not what this is. Building your own platform is about making someone feel like they matter. Putting your readers first. Okay, so that's the core philosophy. How do we actually do that? What are some like three to five actionable steps? Let me tell you them. So one is checking in with your reader in the first 30 days of when they come to your platform. So 
let's say they buy your subscription on September 1st or a merch or on your direct store, or maybe they crowdfund a campaign of yours. Just three examples, okay? You need to be following up with them, not to remarket to them. You, you can do that too, but not to upsell them, not to, not to do anything else, but other than check-in. A check-in goes a long way, a long way. And I know this because I was actually talking with a guy who his role, and we might have him more involved, but we're not sure, but he's a good guy. I just, I'm not mentioning his name because we have to figure out if he's going to be someone who we have in the podcast or not. And I don't want to hype this thing up, but he's someone who actually used to work for Patreon. Now it runs other creators subscriptions. Like basically he has a management firm where basically like he runs the subscription, the creator doesn't run it at all. Like they basically just focus on creating. And then he does the business. Basically he's doing steps six through 10. He's doing steps six through 10. The creator may have even out, you know, licensed out to a separate party, steps one through five, and they're just focused on creating. That sounds like the dream to a lot of us, but he's working with like multi six-figure creators. Um, and even then, like, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting he, like everyone should work with him. I think you should know how to do it yourself. Wow, that was a tangent. His advice though, and what really stuck with me was around the first 30 days. He saw, like when you reached out to someone in the first 30 days, like really reached out to them. It's like, hey, I hope you're doing well. I, I hope you're enjoying the book that you read. I hope that, and, and, and don't just upsell them right in the end, right? It's like a waiter coming into your table and checking in, right? Instead of being like, hey, like I've got some more wine for you all. I hope you're enjoying dinner. Do you want this new bottle? Instead, just being like, hey, I, I hope dinner is going well. Can I help you with anything? Okay, that's the first thing. A check-in in the first 30 days. He's someone who emphasized that to me and showed me the power in that. Um, so shout out, shout out there. The second thing, so check-in in the first 30 days. The next thing is building a parasocial relationship. But that doesn't mean you have to be the person building that parasocial relationship. And that also doesn't mean it has to be just related to your worlds. Okay, let me dive into that. So if you want to build your own network as an author, your own platform, you want people to have an emotional attachment to stick with it. And a lot of times in the traditional creator economy, when we talk more about YouTubers, podcasters, it's about their personality, right? And building relationships with their personality. But in the author world, that, that, that analogy doesn't work one-to-one. -one. Sometimes it's our personality, but oftentimes we want to, our pen name is a, is a shadow. <laughs> and we don't want people to actually know who we are. I'm going to give you two examples of authors who I think are doing really interesting things in this regard. So one of them is Jack Steen, who might be here if you are here hello jack but jack steen i'm gonna put their link in the chat because it's really really cool and when i saw their subscription page i just was like this is different this grabbed me in and i like the author basically makes themselves a character in this context oh my god the link isn't loading oh my god are we serious we'll get it to load we'll get it to load but jack steen um Uh, let, let me, uh, I'll, I'll answer that 20 minutes. I was getting, I'm a very easily distractible person, but I, I'm trying to get Jackson's subscription and it's not loading for me, which is like devastating. But, um, I think this link will work. Uh, you let me know if it works because it should, I just can't double check it right now. Um, but basically 
when I read this page, I was like, this is it. Read it. Jack Steen is like an asylum, you know, a basically, it's like based around an asylum and these asylum confession stories. And this author is supposedly, right? the A person who's like a late night, like working in the ward and hearing these stories from serial killers and from, from patients who are there and is then sharing these stories with their readers. What, what, a, like, I'm super connected to this person. And the thing is, this is the trick, okay? It could, it might all be a lie, but that doesn't matter. Because regardless of whether this person, because this is not their real name, okay? Um, they're using a pen name for obvious reasons, because if this person was real, <laughs> they would get fired. <laughs> but use a little creativity. They basically created a whole persona for themselves because they had to. And that's the whole thing. So we don't have a parasocial relationship with the real author. We have a parasocial relationship with the author that became a character. And I think they did it really, really well. And really, really simply, right? Because we're not talking about something that's super complex. We're talking about like one or two sentences that get someone in on what they're about to be part of. I'm now connected to this Jack Steen character who also happens to be the author of these stories. And I want to see what's going to happen next. I want to see where's the next confession unfolding. That is that is big for retention. But you can also extend this to the parasocial relationships you have with characters. And Amelia Rose actually does this really well, where she's she's not actually, she is forward with her readers. Like she definitely, there is an aspect of them knowing her, but more of her focus is on the characters. And she actually took this to the next level, which I don't know, is Amelia here? Amelia might be here. I think, well, either way, hi, Amelia. Um, we, we talk all the time, so I'm always like, she's somewhere close by or not. But shout out to her. She did this thing. Um, some of you might know Letter Loop probably through Amelia because I found this tool. It's like one of the million creator economy tools I mentioned in the book. But Letter Loop basically allows people to create like a group so, uh, newsletter so that your readers can contribute to your newsletter as well. And she uses that for people to basically share like fan fiction so that they can start to like kind of build a close relationship with the characters. It's a very, very good tactic. And these are the types of things that can like build retention. Pia Ravanari, Ravanari is another good example. They have a whole, it's called the Fatum Week, where they literally have, and I think their fans may have like kind of suggested this, but like this is just shows the magic of retention. Every year, their readers have a celebration of fan art, fan, uh, fan fiction, and just the Fatum universe that Pia has created. And you might be wondering, like, wow, like, that that sounds really cool. But I'll, I'll just tell you this. They've had their subscription for 10 years now. They are the longest author that I've seen or known to have a subscription. A fiction author who's been going at this in subscriptions for 10 years. I don't think it's any secret that they've obviously had really great retention. But that retention also is in tandem with building these parasocial relationships between the world, the characters. It's an incredible tactic and something that you can really implement very easily. Um, but you also can take it to the next level, whether it's, you know, Amelia's level with letter loop or going to the next level with Pia Ravanari. Literally, like they have like a whole week of celebrations around their stories. Okay, that's just it's just very cool. And what is what is the third thing? The third thing when making someone feel cared for is responding to their needs. It's responding to their needs. 
And we mention this all the time, but I can't underscore it. Responding to like the comments that you have in your subscription, responding to the emails if it's related to your direct store is huge. It's huge. But I want to give you advice. Tori, I know is full-time. Jamie's full-time. We're lucky to have so many successful authors who listen to us. You have family lives. You have books to write. You have a lot of stuff going on. You don't have to do it yourself. And this is where I'm going to take some advice from the number one OnlyFans creator in the world, which I, I almost feel weird shouting them out, but I don't actually feel weird shouting them out. They're doing like amazing stuff, but uh, you know, go look them up if you want in your own time. I'm not going to share their link today, but if you want to go to the number one OnlyFans creator in the world, what she does is she has a team who helps her out build relationships and basically like these retention tactics, right? And the biggest thing and what she does differently compared to all these other OnlyFans agencies is all the OnlyFans agencies go in and they utilize the same retention tactics, right? And they pretend like they're the creator. They pretend, but it's a lie. It's a lie. And you might think, oh, well, most of the stuff you could just respond to with thank you. And is it really a big deal? Well, well, Bryce Adams, the OnlyFans creator with the, the, the biggest OnlyFans in the world, doesn't do that. Because she's all about honesty, building trust. And that long-term relationship that she's building with her audience, her customers. So she's up front that, yeah, she's the number one OnlyFans creator in the world. I don't even want to imagine the amount of inbound she gets. <laughs> it's way too much for one person to handle. She has a team. She has a team. And they're upfront about that. They're upfront that this isn't Bryce Adams. It's the team of Bryce Adams. And I know that seems weird, but she has higher retention than them. Like, it's not like people were turned off by it. They were actually like, oh, this is honest. This isn't just, this is the real deal. And they're caring for me. It's not just some random bot. It's the team. I, I, you wouldn't expect that, but it's it's interesting, right? Yes. And and you're, uh, and you're right about KM Shea. The, the responding honestly is the biggest thing. And if you're not comfortable doing that yourself, you can have even... Even, even at a small stage, that could be something you work with a reader to do. If emails are not your thing, you're truly introverted in a way that like actually responding to things like this could be toxic for your mental health. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm definitely not asking you to do that. But what I am asking you is get someone else to do it for you um, and have them be themselves. And that goes such a long way. Those three tactics, let's sum it up again for step nine. And I really have gone on longer about this than I wanted to, but <laughs> three retention tactics, because once someone's in your network, they have to stay. Is reach out to them in the first 30 days in a way that isn't transactional, in which you're asking for nothing else from them, but then to hopefully make them okay. M make sure that they're having a good time with whatever that product or service is that you're selling, whether it's a merch, whether it's early access, whether it's, we can go down the list, there's a lot. Okay, so is... Build a parasocial relationship with your readers. And that could extend to be you as a human being. Like actually, it could be a persona you could create. It could be building relationships with one of your characters. Or it could be building relationships between your readers through collaborative like fan fiction events or literally like holidays that you throw in your world. Shout out Pia. And then the third tactic is responding to your readers. But being real that I understand that not everyone has the time to do that. And that's okay. But... When, or mental health reasons, like that might not be what you want to do. And you don't have to want to do that, but then you're going to want to 
make sure you have someone doing it. And an example of someone who did this very early on in their career before Michael Chatfield, Michael Chatfield is really a brilliant author, by the way, he's a lit RPG author, brilliant. Uh, his first hire um, before he was even full-time was a CUNY manager. And the CUNY manager did this role. And I have a hypothesis that a CUNY manager is going to be one of the fastest growing roles in the creator economy and for indie authors. And it's going to be like unbelievably and extremely valuable. And I think that um, especially for full-time authors listening, like I would really seriously consider what does a CUNY manager look like for you? Because again, your time's best spent writing stories. And I'm not going to trick you and, and say that like hanging out with your fans 80 hours a week is going to like, you know, be worth it because then you're not going to write it all. And you're going to be probably depressed because writing is what you love, but get someone who likes to do that type of thing. And you'll see the power in a box. It's huge. Woo! Steps one through nine. What's step 10? Okay. Step 10 is rinse and repeat for this cycle because you're always going to want to reflect on these steps again. I'm going to go through these steps again, and then I'm going to open up to questions. I promise. I'll probably stay here past 430 because I genuinely, I hope this was useful, but I actually, this was longer than I thought. Um, so step, step 10, <laughs> step 10 is experimentation but the right kind of experimentation. Because look, here's the deal. Before you go into a step, I want you to set a goal of what you're looking for in that step. Maybe step, going back to the discovery steps, right? Step five, you might wanna find new fans. Um, and maybe you're looking for a hundred fans, you know, maybe it's a hundred email signups, maybe it's a hundred followers and X platform, but maybe that doesn't work out the way you're looking for in that timeline. The answer is then not just keep focusing on that one platform. It's Stop the process. We're stopped at step five. You know, put the brakes on the system and let's go back and, and, and let's go to step 10 and experiment. Step 10 is our experimentation step that we constantly put in there. And what you'll see when you experiment the right way is that you can make a lot of progress and learn a lot fast. Here's something I fundamentally believe that the reason you all are not making a million dollars next year as an author is because you don't know how. And also, I don't know how either. So don't, 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 don't think that I do. Um, but, but like, if you did, you would, you would do it, right? Like what is holding you back? We're all capable. Anyone with an internet connection can do it. What's holding you back is that you don't know how, whether it's the craft aspect of things or there's the business aspect of things. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's beautiful. You don't wake up knowing how to make a million dollars as an author and million is just a number that sounds fun. Let's talk about a hundred thousand, 10,000, whatever that number is for you. Uh, I and others too, uh, you know, call this ignorance debt. You're paying off your ignorance debt. But how can you pay off the ignorance debt as fast as possible? Because it's very easy to just let your debt accrue interest and sit back and be like, I'm never going to get there. Let's actually be systematic about it. So how do we systematically experiment? There's three things as well. I, I like threes, people, okay? So first, first rule, stop with small tweaks, take big risks. And there's one exception to this rule, and I'm going to get into that, but I almost would bet that if I'm talking to a room of a thousand people, only it applies to probably one or two people. You should take big risks instead of small tweaks because the odds of, if something isn't working, you found this discovery pathway isn't working the way you want. You found that when you launched your merch store, it flopped. You found that your retention tactics really aren't working. Your readers are churning after two months. I mean, we could go down the list of all the steps that can break down in this process, right? Because if you follow these steps, we have like the super fan system, okay? 
But when it breaks down, very rarely is it, oh, if only my email open rate was 55% from 50%, that would change my career. Maybe I should adjust this headline or, oh, it must be my book description. I know I've tweaked it 10 times already, but if I tweak it this 11th time, it's going to change my career. We can get caught up in that the little things are going to make the big difference. They're not, that's a lie. Little things make little differences and little differences sure add up. But if we see a breakdown in a step, we wanna make a big change. We wanna make a big change. That's the first thing, like allow yourself to make big changes, which also means allowing yourself to make big mistakes that don't work out, right? It, it means willing to have a step fall on your face and be like, wow, this was this was a failure, right? But that's okay because we, I did a whole podcast today where failure isn't really failure. But at the same time, like we really want to be able to get through these things fast, right? Which goes us to step two. Because if we adopt this mindset that we want to make big changes, not small, because most of us are looking for 10Xs, not 10%, right? Who here would like a 10X over 10%? I think everyone would just say yes. So I, I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> so that's what we're going for. Then we want to make sure that we're playing the 10X game and not the 10%. But now we go to like, what do we do, right? What what I have that mindset. Now, what is step two? Step two is all about focusing on the why. Because when you look back at what went wrong, or maybe you haven't even done it yet and you're getting ready to run your first experiment, you want to have some sort of hypothesis going into it, some sort of hypothesis. So maybe you have a hypothesis that your readers will appreciate early access because they read your books in serial fiction platforms and they're really used to chapter by chapter. And you have, you know, uh, cliffhangers at the end of your chapters, et cetera, right? But maybe that's one thing. So that's one hypothesis you have. But maybe you proved to be wrong. I was working with an author today, actually, earlier today, where we were looking at her mailing list and I was looking at the clicks that came through in the email. Okay. And I was just sitting down with her and I was like, so you have a 55% open rate. You got about, you know, maybe 1800 people on this list, but she would, her goal was to get more followers on read that would eventually convert to paying members. That was her kind of funnel. She was building out, but she only had two people at a, like a high open rate actually become followers. So I was like, we have to find the problem here. What's the problem? So we sit down, we look at the data. And not getting lost in the data, but looking at it. Okay, well, you had a 5% click-through rate. That's actually decent. But where were those clicks? You open up the map and you see what links they clicked. Oh, five people clicked on the link. 37 people clicked on the book funnel link to a swap that you were doing. Why? We looked at the email design. The Ream link was mentioned first. It was the most prominent thing in the email. The book funnel stuff came later. Okay. So then you look at that, you're like, well, it's, it's probably not because they didn't see it. They saw it. It's probably not because it's bad email design. It's not bad email design or anything like that. Probably your offer wasn't compelling to them. And instead of me telling her, maybe tweak this language or indent this line or add this bullet point, I was like, we need to blow up your offer. We need to like start from square one. Like, you had seven X more people scroll down in your email, which is friction, definition of friction. They scroll to click on another link than the link that you actually wanted them to click on. That is like the definition of like, we know something. So our hypothesis about why was that her readers weren't interested in her benefit at all. So we came up with something completely different and tried it out because what did she have to lose? 
not much because we're just experimenting. Um, so I won't go into like the nuances of that whole thing, but <laughs> the, the idea of it was like, we didn't just say, let's go make a new line. We made a big thing, but it was based off this reason why. We went in and had data to back up that reason why. It's so important to have data on that. What do you do if you're just getting started or you haven't tried this experiment yet? You're running experiment for the first time and you don't have data of your own. Look at other authors. See what's worked for them because then you can develop your own hypotheses based on what's worked for them. And specifically, look at the right authors. Look at the right platforms. How are you going to be able to tell that? Steps one through three, right? Which steps one through three, I'll reiterate and then I'll do my full roundup. But step one is easy. We all pass step one, which I love, which is creator colonies, building your own platform. Woo step two, who's going to be part of your platform? Step three, where and what other platforms are they hanging out on? And that's where we can always go back to those core foundations and use that to inform later experiments. Okay. What's the final part of experimentation? The final part is make it as fast and painless as possible. The truth is this, you don't have time to bet the farm on a, on a new potential, you know, direct line working out, a new discovery channel working out. Like I said, focus is key. We're focusing. But you also don't have time to bet everything on one experiment. So try to do everything in your power to think about how can I make this as easy as possible myself to get the answer I need. You don't have to go all out yet. Not when you're trying to figure out, is this going to work? You don't need to worry about the little optimizations, the little perfection things. Why? Because I do it myself, but why don't you need to worry? Because like we said, the 10% and 10X, you're going to very clearly see a difference of if this is something worth optimizing on the edges, or if it's something that isn't worth it at all. And spending the double, the triple the time to try and sculpt this thing around the edges, whether it's the perfect email campaign, the perfect tier copy, the perfect merch design. It's like, well, no, no, let's slow up. Let's just test it out, okay? And that goes from a money perspective too. Time and money are the most important things you have. You want to try and decrease the time you're spending to get to these results. You also want to try and decrease the money. You know, I mean, this was totally free. The Creator Economy for Authors book is free now for all of y'all. I'll give you as much free as I possibly can. And that's just me. There's other people with lots of other free insights out there. You can use so many different free software programs and free trials. One thing I love is that you think you're going to have to pay for something um, that, that like beyond 30 days, which is fair. Like, how can you design that experiment so that you know whether it's worth it after the next 30 days or not? Like use free trial periods as like pressure to like move fast and get things done. But that doesn't mean like working incessantly. That means getting to an answer. Because ultimately, even if that answer isn't the answer you want to hear, the experiment didn't work, you will learn and you'll rinse and repeat the process, which is going through, we're going to make some big changes rather than little ones. We're going to always look at why. And then we're going to test and always try and make ourselves fail safe, where it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out. We're going to be okay. Our family's bills are going to be okay. Life's going to be fine. And that that sounds like, that's, that sounds really tough because most of us struggle to do all of those things. But I would like literally hate myself if I gave you advice to license your whole career or your family's next meal on your subscription launch. That's just not responsible. That's not right. And you shouldn't be thinking about it that way. Because if you come up with an experimentation mindset, you're thinking, how can I learn more than anyone else over the next six months rather than how can I be successful tomorrow? I'm not telling you to sacrifice a decade to the book gods, but I am saying, let's think a little bit more 
on the medium term timeline of success. That is my rant. Um, that was way, way longer than I wanted to be. I really am sorry. Um, but I think that the biggest criticism I've had from the Creator Economy for Authors book, which like everyone, I remember the criticism and none of the good things, um, is that, yes, this is a great book, but I want even more actionable. It took you 100 pages to get to the actual stuff. Fair, I get really nerdy about the theoretical stuff in this industry, but the actual stuff is these 10 steps. And I'm going to share it one last time. And then we'll get into questions. And I'm sorry for overwhelming you because um, I probably did, even though I want, didn't want to. Uh, so step one, <laughs> step one, creator economy is about building your own platform. Simple. Step two, who is going to be part of your platform? Step three, where are the people who are part of your platform hanging out? I mean that in the broadest possible sense. Have fun with that. Step four, which platforms and which ways do you want to introduce yourself to your readers? How do you want that first introduction to go? What are you passionate about? What are you good at? What can you see yourself being excited to dive into? Why? Is because step five is focus on one platform. Remember, we're going to get to step 10 where this can change, but focus on one platform. Now we've crossed the chasm. We have some readers. Let's go. That, that's, that's, a really, that's a really hard thing to do. Now we want to move on to step six, okay? Which is what could you provide or what experience could you give to your readers that could give them more value, that could deepen your relationship with your readers? Because remember, we've been basically licensing rented land to try and grab readers from other platforms because we're trying to build our own. And that's okay, that's beautiful. But now it's time to build our own because we got the readers now. Step seven is now that we have the readers and we have an idea of what we kind of want to do. I'm saying kind of because this doesn't have to be like the long-term grand plan. I'm gonna you know, have a subscription with three tiers for the next five years. It's like, yeah, we're just gonna try something. What is the monetization model you want to pick? And we talked about three core ones, merchandise, uh, sorry, a la carte sales, crowdfunding, and subscriptions. Obviously, we focus on subscriptions, but that's okay. Like, you could focus on anything. I think there's so much overlap between these in terms of the learnings. And it's a totally separate conversation of, like, what is best for which specific kind of model. But um, I, have, I have thoughts there. Um, but generally, you'll want to dive into that stuff. Then step eight is how can you convince them to make the jump, make the leap from you have your your offer, you have how you're monetizing that offer, which doesn't even have to be paid, by the way. You could make a free offer on your own platform, right? I mean, the best way to think about this is a newsletter. You have a free offer to go over to your newsletter. See, we're bringing it all in, people. But step, step eight is how do you convince them to come over, right? And there's three things that I want you to remember there, which is limited time discounts, um, something that's exclusive. Um, all right, limited time, one, two, discounts or bundles. Three, something that's exclusive. Step nine is now that they're there, they've crossed the chasm, they're inside of your platform. Your fun is still beginning because if they leave after a month and they're not interested in coming back to your platform, you lose. You need them to stick around. That's retention. So it's all about utilizing retention tactics. That's step nine. And there's three retention tactics to remember. One, reach out to your reader within the first three days of them entering your platform, not to ask for them something from them, but to ask how they're doing. 
That's the simplest way I can frame it. The restaurant's the best example. Point two, that's really important, is building a parasocial relationship. And as we discovered, it can be between you, between a persona of you, between your characters, or even between your readers. And then step three is responding to your readers. And it doesn't have to be you responding to your readers, but it has to be something where they know that you've put and your brand and your team has put a time and investment into caring for them as a reader. And then step 10 is experimentation. When any of these steps break down, we want to experiment about how we can improve our process, learn more, and ultimately get on to the next step. Because if we get to step nine, that's like where we want to go. Then we just can rinse and repeat the process to grow, right? So step 10 is, is experimentation. Three things to remember is irritation. Stop with the little stuff, take big risks because you want big change in your business if something's not working. Step two, always focus on the why, the why, the why. And always go back to trying to have a deeper understanding of who your readers are and what they want, because that's what we're trying to give them. And then step three is make the experiment fast and make it as painless as possible, both in terms of time, money, emotionally, psychologically. I don't want you all to feel pain. I want this to be fun. That's it. Those are the 10 steps of building your own creator economy. Um, and I hope I kind of outlined how in today's world, not some sort of far off future, but today, you can bridge the gap between these creator platforms and your platform as an author. Um, I'm looking at the time. It's hilarious. I'm going to stay for till 5 p.m. But please, like, if you have to go now, you've you've got it all the good stuff. I'm going to be real. Like, this was my presentation. Holy moly, did not expect it to go that long, like, truly. But I guess I'm not going to give you a half-assed presentation. So I want to give you the full thing. Um, I should have really made slides for this because I, again, I thought it was just going to be me sharing some little tidbits and then we're going to get into a conversation, but I kind of gave like a thesis. But with that said, I want you all to have the link to read this book. Okay. You can read it and download it here um, in the chat. If you have to go at you know, the next four minutes, because that's when this event was scheduled and know that you're not missing on anything and that you can contact me. It's probably best if you contact um, support at reamstories.com about questions for me, because then my team will badger me to get to it, but you can also reach out to me personally here um, and I will do my best to get to it. But my personal email inbox is kind of a wasteland. Um, but like, if you do reach out, I, I I do care. I will do my best. But if you reach out to the Reem one, the, you know, I, I will, I might get to it faster. Um, and you can reach out about any questions you have personally, because I want to answer all your questions, but I also recognize that if you have to go in four minutes, I'm not going to be able to answer your question realistically. Um, but with that said, we're going to leave a half hour for questions from folks. I hope this was useful. <laughs> um, and I, I personally had a lot of fun uh, going back and trying to uh, rewrite my book in this talk, um, which is the best way that we launch something is uh, looking back and seeing how we could uh, do better. Um, that's what we do as authors. We're always like, oh, the next book is better. Um, but I'm going to now allow you all to you know, turn on your mics, uh, unmute yourselves, um, and if you have any questions, just want to chat, um, it could be questions about anything. I'm a totally open book. I want to help you. And I hope that this was helpful today. Or do people just want to like hang out? People are like, well, if that was a lot, we should just like talk about more fun things. <laughs>
see question. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful for you all being here. I'm sorry, Inca, that your brain has gone bye-bye. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just like my first time trying something like this. Um, so I, I'm grateful for you guys hanging out with me. But uh, questions? I have answers or ideas about anything. So not a question, but is my microphone? Not allowed. Working? It must be a question area. Must be a question. I'm kidding around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding around. question sort of for the collective um when it comes to community managers there can be a lot of negative around the word gatekeeper right I've had that one thrown at me before when I was acting as a community manager because there were some people who just didn't understand and it was an interesting experience but for especially for people who are writing specfic genres, community managers, you can create a lot of fun titles for that role, right? I mean, yeah, 100%. I, I think, um, yes, I'm with you there. So that was just an add-on thought that I had when you were talking about community managers and how important they were and a fast growing role is you can make it really fun and some authors have done that and that can also be a way to like bridge for authors who are kind of like well but about using community managers no i i'm like fully and completely with that i think i i think that also as well like um the thinking of a community manager is like it's basically like taking the concept of an arc team and mm -hmm. bring it to your community, right? Because we have arc teams where like our devoted fans support what we're doing. But what's interesting is that when I look at a lot of author arc teams and you, you might know this because you've had an arc team like this before, sometimes they're made of people who aren't very passionate about, Oof. you know what I mean? You know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the arc team isn't, isn't very effective I would say like that would be like a horrific mistake to do for a, a community street team because um, you really want to make that people who are passionate about what you're doing. So like a community manager role is not something that you just go out and hire on, on Fiverr. It's something that like is from within your community. And yeah, I will say that like um, we try and practice what we preach with subscriptions for authors. It's nonfiction and I will go on forever about how it's different than what you guys need to do as fiction authors for sure. But uh, we have uh, what I would call a group of tremendous people who are serving in a community management role. Um, in fact, I believe the contract we make them sign, it you know, literally states them as such. Um, and uh, they are you know, volunteers from the community. And we do everything we can to reward them. And now most of them have stuck around for like a year. So like it, it's been pretty cool, but uh, that, that, that was very organic and um, very much came from within the community. And I knew when we started it that we, we were going to need to do that eventually. Um, and it took about a year till I felt like we were in a good enough place to consider that. So these things take time, but yeah, it, it's important to, if you're wanting to build your own platform, you know, another analogy is like a store manager, which like, it depends. Like if you're not a very like community centric type of network or platform that you're building, um, 
you're going to want someone who's probably heading up customer service at some point. Um, there's a lot of authors I talk to who have family members do this for them, which is beautiful if a spouse or partner can do that for you, but you kind of need someone eventually once you get to a certain level. Um, and the beauty is that almost certainly that person can come from your fan base. Um, I've seen many authors post job postings to their, their fans, um, which is a cool thing. And you don't have to like title the job something boring because I don't think anyone like, unless you're like, unless you're like a mega full-time author who can afford to give someone a full-time role. And then it's like, this is their career. Um, and you kind of want to, you know, be a little bit more professional about it. Um, if someone's just doing something for fun and you want to throw them a few extra dollars here and there and make it fair, I'm all for paying people fairly. Um, like truly, I, I'm not suggesting anyone don't. Um, but with the understanding that maybe it's a couple hours a week, and not a full-time job, that person maybe doesn't need, you know, they're maybe looking to do that more because it's fun and because they want to, you know, be a part of it. Um, and you could title it something fun, but professionally, because there are a number of people hiring for these roles full-time, the professional role is simply called a community manager. Um, and it is a real career path. There might even be people, I, I see this starting to happen, who will have like community manager agencies where they're working with 10 or 15 authors to do that type of thing. And similar to like being a PA, honestly, very similar, but there's just a slightly different skill set and focus, right? Because a PA is very much like, it depends. A lot of PAs have their focuses, um, but a PA could technically help you with anything. So this is kind of a niche of a, of a PA in, in the author world. That's one way of thinking about it. It's really fun thinking about all the different roles <laughs> authors can hire for, but that's like, Totally another conversation. I think team building is really important for especially full-time authors. Uh, it's very tough to do it all alone. And if you are doing it all alone, I really encourage you to think about if you could save 15 to 20 hours in your week, um, even though you're going to take an income hit in the short run, how much faster could that make up in your quality of life and also grow your business? Because you're probably able to do other things better um, than, you know, <laughs> like than maybe these other types of roles which are important. I, I'm arguing essential, except maybe not essential for you to do. But in the beginning, you have to do it all, which is exactly why I suggest focus, 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 and make it easy on yourself. Um, and the beginning is probably longer than you think, um, which is not a bad thing. It's just important to then make it fun, keep it focused, and make it easy on yourself. Especially when we talk about something as overwhelming as the creator economy, because this is a seismic shift in how publishing is happening. We're saying more and more reader time, attention, and dollars are coming off of the big platforms and onto your own platforms. And you know, as you ride this wave, you don't want to drown in it. There's no reason for any of you to drown. And the great thing is that this isn't like a wave that you're going to miss out on or that, oh my God, like if you don't jump right now, it's all going to end. No, it's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. That's my, my thoughts in the future. My, not always, but I'll, I'll project that. And I like that you mentioned quality of life and I don't want to like derail the conversation or anything, but that was- No, a, please was open really up questions, point. people. Like actually come up with questions. <laughs> Me and Ariel could talk forever. But it's a good <laughs> This is true. This is true. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions, comments, musings, ideas, things they want to talk about? I'm a man of my word. I'll be here till five. Michael, hi, Kimberly. it's Kim Shade here. Hello. Hello. Um, 
I would thank you for everything you've talked about today in the book. I just wanted to ask you because I have um, three different pen names and thinking about the steps that you were talking about, um, the best way to go about it, because at the moment I've got the three different pen names, I've got separate accounts for them. And really, eventually, I'd like to merge them, but they are quite different genres. So I've got dark, gritty crime, paranormal romance, and contemporary romance. Those are definitely different genres. Yeah. So if I was going about going to go about the steps that you've talked about today for those different genres, um, what would be the best way to do it, do you think? I'm thinking about time saving, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a great, great question. Um, you know, I, I my first thing would be like at a framework level, I would think about each of your pen names as like a separate run through this, the steps one through 10, because yeah. it's likely a different fan journey and a different kind of fan. Um, like you'll, you'll step one, which we all are going to accomplish. Step one, I'm big mm -hmm. on getting momentum. Is what is the creator economy? It's building your own platform. Great. When we move on to step two, you'll start to see that you have three different answers, and that's where your paths will diverge. In terms of time saving for yourself, um, you know there there are a number of authors who have at a very high level been able to be successful with multiple pen names. Yeah. And that's like really, really inspiring and cool to see. But with that said, I'm not sure how many of them grew all three simultaneously at once. And, and, and like, they may have been working on them, but it's like that 80-20 rule. There was probably one that they were spending almost all of their time on. For most, um, I'm sure there's exceptions to that rule, but especially in the beginning, like it's hard enough to make it as one, it, it's hard enough to make it as one author, but you're kind of, trying to do this three at once. So what I would do is, and you kind of have an advantage here, like don't actually think that pen names are bad. Pen names are actually a beautiful thing because you can start to pick one and run through those 10 steps. And maybe you get stopped at step five and that's where you find the problem, right? And what you can then do is when you want another experiment and you go through those steps again, you could actually do it for a different pen name, right? You could, right. and you could then do it for your other pen name. And eventually one of them is going to start to gain traction based on what you're learning. Because the beautiful thing and why you see authors who are already successful launch other pen names successfully is because they know so much about book publishing and a lot of that information is transposable. You know what I'm saying? So as yeah. you learn more, no matter what you do, it's going to be easier for you to continue on with new pen names. But what I would recommend doing from a business management perspective is you really only want to scale one. So with, at first, because when you get one to start kind of like taking off and gaining traction, which is what these 10 steps are going to try and get you to, it would be great for you to build up advantage, build one of those businesses to a level where you can start to take capital out of that business, pay for your own expenses in your life, you know, that, that most important. But then also you can then use that capital as leverage to launch your next pending faster. Not only will you have more information, and not saying launch, but get through those next steps faster. Not only will yes. you have more information, but you'll be able to hire out a lot of the stuff from a time perspective that we are talking about. And then you can get that one up and going. And then you could do the next one. And I mean, 
there's examples of authors doing this, but I guess I would say like in the beginning, be flexible, be flexible. You're just trying to get readers and it's okay if you bounce back and forth between pen names, because you're at the end of the day, you're learning and that's what matters. But as you start to really get into the groove with one and get deeper into those steps, I would lean in um, and I would really lean in. And, and then, you know, once that really starts to get to a, a good place, you can, you know, start to hire out other places because ideally you spend all your time writing and you can keep up with the writing of three pen names. Although it's hard, you could do it. But when you count everything else in that you have to do, it's going to be tough. Okay. No, that's, that's really baseline advice. Yeah. No, that's really helpful because I, I do get very easily sidetracked and I go from one to the other to the other and one minute I'm really focused on one. I've okay. got I've got I've, books out in crime, but not in the others. I'm I'm really big on because I I make I filter my decisions through like either like values like or frameworks. Like I think you need to have both. And I'm not here to tell you what your value should be, um, mm-hmm. because that's not my place. But I do think I can help you with another framework, which is I think you should have a handshake agreement with yourself. Um, what do I mean by this? I think that you because I'm, I work similar to you in terms of like, I am like, I, I actually feed and get passion from working on different projects. I do yeah. jump back and forth to multiple things. And that's not a bad thing. That's an asset you have as a creative person, but you do sometimes need to bound yourself because if you start to see something gaining attention, but you're stuck on book four in this pen name that only has two people reading it, which trust me, like, I know that's something that authors do. Um, that's not a great use of your time. You need to double down now. So what I think you need to do is set basically, and I would encourage you to do this now, is reflect on what would be a level of like traction for me. And we can talk about how you have to measure that traction. That would be undeniable where I would have to go all in on this. Um, and I'm not saying quit your job. I'm not saying that level, but where like this pen name becomes the focus. When am I comfortable to say that this pen name is my focus? It doesn't have to be the sole focus, but certainly when you start to be like, yeah, no, you know what? I shouldn't be spending my time writing this story right now, even though I'm passionate about it, because right now I've got to do this. Uh, it's hard for me to say what would be for you, but I would think about it like basically on like one core metric, which is revenue. Um, that's the re- really the metric I would think about because it's very easy to say, oh, I got 5,000 followers on my Instagram. Let's go. But maybe they don't convert to paying customers. So I would mm-hmm. think like maybe... I mean, I think a big number is like, if you can cross a hundred dollars three months straight, that means you're really getting somewhere. And like, that's, that's very significant. That doesn't necessarily mean profit, but revenue, you yeah. know, that's, that's very interesting. I think that's a good, like low baseline for something like this. And certainly if you're hitting a thousand dollars a month, I would be like, come on, you've got to, that would be like, if I was to bound my handshake agreement for you, I would be saying like a hundred dollars to a thousand dollars. You could pick anywhere in between or one of those numbers. But yeah, if you set that handshake agreement yourself, you write it down and you stick to it where it's like, nope, once I hit this, I've got to shift more to this pen name. Um, now the only caveat to this is passion. If you yeah. find yourself not liking one of your pen names, even though it's making you money and it feels like you should go all on it. If your passion isn't there, forget what I just said. Passion is the number one most important thing. I'm assuming going into this that you're semi-equally passionate about all three pen names. But if that's yes. not the case or it isn't the case in the future, then that that's more important. Okay. 
I started really writing the paranormal romance and the romance as a palate cleanser for the crime because it's the crime that I write. And because it's so dark and gritty, I found that I was turning to something like that in between because I read all of those genres and I love all of those genres. So that was kind of the reason that I turned to it to begin with. Um, but crime is the one that I've written most of, and it's the one that I've got the majority of books on. So, but that's really helpful. Sometimes I need someone to just say, look, stop messing about, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, look, it's, it's, it's something we all have to do that because thinking about even too, like all the opportunities, the creator economy, going into something like subscriptions, going into new new business models and different lines of revenue i i think the concept of a handshake agreement uh is really important for us all to consider like when do you say like this is working and i need to put more attention into it and likewise with that another aspect of it is when do you say this isn't working like i need to this experiment's over um <laughs> that that's a <laughs> tough thing to say but if you don't have it then uh our our minds stink at this stuff. Sunk cost fallacy. We get attached to the things we do. Um, and it's really tough for a lot of us to say goodbye to things. And one of the things that I see commonly in authors is that, um, I mean, Becca Simon wrote a book on her. Hey, you need to you, quit. Um, I'm not asking you to quit being an author. No, don't do that. But there's certain things you need to quit about what you're doing. And obviously Becca Simon's great, um, but that that's one of her famous titles for good reason. Um Let's uh let's go to Maddie. So Maddie asked in the chat, do you have any tips? And they can be mindset tips, not necessarily tactics for the readers, on how to move fans who are used to getting stuff for free to a paid model. I give free books to people who sign up to my list. I have no idea if they'd be willing to pay, but I'm used to giving that stuff for free. Um great, great question. So uh I am not sure if they'd be willing to pay. You know, I willing is uh Willings like um is sometimes I see the wrong word to think about. It's are they able to pay? Because some like it depends on where your readers are coming from, but depending on the economy, market, and age of your readers, and at all that generalizations, it's really the individual. People have a different willingness to pay for different types of things. Um and it's actually really interesting to see different people's uh willingness to pay. Like for instance, um, Gen Z is the most likely to subscribe to an individual creator subscription. Uh, Gen Z who are younger and making less money than millennials and all the other generations have more subscriptions on average than millennials do. And a lot more than baby boomers, double what baby boomers have. Um, so there's like, like, I mean, not to like, like overanalyze your question, but just more saying there's like a lot of different elements to that in terms of willingness to pay. Like, how are they paying? Um, what are they paying for? And so, and and you're going to see that like different segments, different genres, different markets are going to have completely different ways of responding to things, um, which I find fascinating, but it's really frustrating when you're trying to figure it out. Uh, in terms of like um, uh, the question, I can't tell you if your readers are, are going to pay you or not, but I can say this. If your readers are reading your work, the biggest mindset thing is to think, the most valuable thing we all have is time. It's the one thing we can't buy more of. And if your readers are really sitting there reading your books and spending time on them, 
they already have a ton of value for your books. They value them a lot. And in most cases, that translates to a certain percentage and oftentimes a, a very much non-negligible one who are also willing to support you and pay you financially too and, and exchange that kind of value. But you've already gotten the hard part down. If your readers are reading your books, even if they're for free, that's huge. Um, I, you know, I know we can talk about freebie seekers and sometimes in the author community, we can almost like, I wouldn't say look down on it, but be like, oh, well, they're just a freebie seeker. Do we really want that kind of reader? But the first thing you have to think about is if, even if your readers are reading for free, like they're reading you. That's huge. That's like huge. You, you're through step five. You're through step five. Like that's amazing. So what could you offer to them where they might be willing to pay is, is now the next question. And, you know, you got to experiment, but I, I don't see why you wouldn't try because you're already through step five. That's clear to me from your message. And I think you're ready to move on and test that next step. And you might find that what they're willing to pay for is, is different um, uh, than what, than what you're thinking. And, and that's not a bad thing, just something to be aware of, but I have a hunch that they'd be willing to pay you for your books and that you don't have to really overthink the model. Um, and that you can start to monetize in, in that way. And even if you just do early access, you still give your book the list for free, but you know, for the next month, they can read it early. That's something. There's a lot of different ways to think about it, but you're only going to know if you try and you should try because you've already done the hard part. And I mean that. So you should really be proud of yourself. I know a lot of us don't feel like real writers until we start making money, but that's a lie. You're a real writer the moment someone reads your book. That's the hardest thing. Yes, Avon is right. KU authors, uh, like they, like it's a little bit of a misnomer around like that K, KU readers won't subscribe. Uh, the largest subscription authors in the world um, are literary PG authors. Um, and they've got a lot of their funnel coming in from railroad in terms of new discovery readers. But from what I've heard, of course, it's anecdotal because I don't, uh, no one has the actual, like no one knows the actual conversion data and like the attribution here. But anecdotally, these authors feel that most of their discovery came after they went to KU in terms of like the number of people joining their subscription. So there's thousands and thousands and thousands of, you know, paying subscribers that some people have from KU, uh, individual authors, you know, in aggregate, it, th there's definitely opportunity there. So that's amazing, man, they're rereading your books. That's huge. That's huge. I mean, if you're to ask someone like, hey, like you could get this for free or you could pay me, they're going to take it for free most oftentimes, right? But if you don't give them that option and you say, hey, you have to get it paid, I'd be really curious to see. Um, you have great ground describers. Yeah, no, 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 the, the, the generational thing too. Like I was just sharing like some aggregate data, which is that, yeah, like Gen Z has a high willingness to pay for subscriptions. And that's like, I, I don't think should, shouldn't be a surprise. But um, I've met, like, personally, like, had conversations with tons of, like, um, readers who are 75 plus who are subscribing to authors, paying, subscribing to authors and really enjoying it. So it's the, the only difference, I'd say, that I see among generations is not necessarily the end willingness, but that people tend to have a little bit more friction who 
literally aren't like what I'll say digitally native. Like I'm digitally native. I'll, I'll call myself that. Like I don't remember a day in my life where I didn't have the internet. Like that doesn't exist to me. Um, so I don't know what the world looks like without the internet. It'd probably be scary to, to think about, I, although I wrote a book about it, but like, regardless, you know what I mean? Um, that Like that's how I grew up. So we're, we're very easily able to move through like online environments. A lot of you all being indie authors, a lot of you are relative to a lot of the population, very tech savvy. So you might be very similar, uh, but a lot of readers aren't that way. Um, but here's the trick. Here's the trick about all of it. The readers that have the most friction upfront are likely to be the most loyal. So a lot of the people that are like, oh, it's like pulling teeth to get them to subscribe. Once they're there, we'll be even more loyal. Um, that's not just true for subscriptions. That's true for a lot of different things. Um, but that's like real, real stuff. So uh, if anything, you just have to meet people where they are at and understand, you know, some people have to work through more things that are holding them back from making a leap to your own platform than others. But that's not something to be frustrated about. It's something to understand and be grateful for, because once they're there, they're more likely to stick around. Data is really real there. Um, okay, I think we got the questions in the chat. That's nice. Any more questions from people? Any more comments? I have one. Hello. Um, since our chat, like a while ago, I don't even remember. Days are blurring at this point. Um, so my current funnel, and I've told myself going into quarter four, I will not change anything which is going to be hard for me with short attention span and like things not working right away. Uh, so my current funnel is back of the book. They get sent to, you know, like the free reader magnet, but that's on Ream for me. Like they have to follow on Ream in order to get access to that, which is still a hurdle, but at least they're on Ream now. And if they're not going to follow to get that, then they weren't going to follow to begin with. So I'm not worried about anybody I lose in that funnel. Um, but I've also got it where they go into the Facebook group. And as much as I would like move off of Facebook, it's active and they like it there. So I guess we're just there. <laughs> I have high hot thoughts on Facebook groups, but I, I like in a, in a, in a way that I, I like completely understand where you're coming from. So like I want off, but they're there and they're active and they like it. Yeah. So I'm like, well, this is where you guys are. Um, maybe one day it functions without me. I don't know. Um, so I don't like having too many funnels, but I feel like having both of those is important. And I was just talking to somebody um, who I'm going to take on as a community manager as well. Um, but like, I, I guess I'm worried about them getting stalled in Facebook and I'm worried about them not coming over. Is, is it more of just like a time and relationship thing? And maybe eventually they'll actually, I mean, I, I've jumped. Yeah, like, you, you have to be very, week, very patient. <laughs> Um, very patient. So, um, so the one thing I struggle with. Yeah, no, no, I, me too. But like, but like you, you like. Uh, so this book was actually recommended me to by the author Joan Raymond. It's called uh, "Belonging to the Brand." And after I read that book, I wanted to dive even deeper. So I read a book, and I'm recommending this book. Um, it's called "The Business of Belonging" by David Spinks. It is the single greatest book about community marketing. And when you read it, it will blow your mind because it's not how us authors tend to think about marketing, but it's a lot of how marketing is now shifting to in terms of, um, I won't go on a huge rant given the time, but um, I'm sure people maybe have thought a little bit about what's going on in the EU. I pay very close attention to it because 
uh, you know, working on a technology platform that handles data with, you know, customers all over the world, including the EU, it's important to be up to date on things like that. Um, and they're making really, really big moves to basically try and kill personalized ads. I'm not saying they will do it, but um, there's a chance that that will happen. Um, I don't think the U.S. is going to do anything like that anytime soon. Uh, but what that is to mean, though, is that this sort of world in which we had these personalized, hyper-personalized algorithms able to exploit people's personal tastes to try and serve them up individual content is slowly fading, like in a real way, like it's being legislated out um, in specific areas of the world where like the conversation is going to be in another two or three years. Like if you want to reach EU readers, a lot of the different platforms we use now, you, you won't be able to. Um, it's not going to work the same way, which is where CUNY comes in because as ad costs go up, acquisition costs get higher, which has happened. If anyone's been running ads since 2017, I have been, you will have seen that. Um, and the customer lifetime value has actually decreased uh, with inflation, KU's not making you any more money. It's actually making you 30 to 40% less since 2017. The, the end game is that CUNY marketing becomes more important than ever. But what is CUNY marketing? Um, the whole the whole book, David Spinks, he dives into like creating a CUNY for acquisition, which um, is way too advanced of a topic to dive into today, but I could nerd out about it forever. But creating a CUNY for acquisition is basically how do I create a CUNY designed for discovery, which sounds wild, but look up the Facebook group Smuthood that Samantha runs. And then you'll be like, oh, wow, if she was an author, she would like be the most best-selling author ever. I mean, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but no, she has a thousand people joining that Facebook group each week. That is a CUNY designed for acquisition, right? Um, so that's just real life example. But now I get to my answer to you, which is the payoff cycle of something like this. Six to 12 months after someone joins your CUNY is when you start to see results on average. Six to 12 months, which is a long time. It's a longer payoff, but the LTV, the retention is extremely high. Um, and it's a moat too. Um, like where it's very tough once you build a CUNY, rising ad costs, algorithm changes. No, like you've built a space that it's hard to actually have it go anywhere, even if it's on rented land like Facebook. Um, so my one answer to you is like, just be patient. It's a six to 12 month game, not a one month game because you're building real trust in the long run. But man, it pays off. My second piece of advice to you is in the Facebook uh, intro questions, ask for their email. And Oh, I see. I have the a little form they have to fill out. So I get their email and the address and I immediately send them out a little like they get like a bookmark and like a welcome note for me too. So I have then, all their emails and addresses too. So you have everyone's email in your Facebook group. And address. Then I wouldn't be worried because what are what are you worried about them getting like stuck in Facebook for? I, I just want them over on Ream. <laughs> I like I, I understand that because you trust that space more and it's and it, and I, I get that. But that's where like, the stories are right now. So yeah. Being realistic though about Reem's capabilities, it doesn't solve all the problems that a Facebook group has. Like you're not going to be able to have readers make posts. They can only comment inside of your read yeah. at the moment. I mean, obviously we're gonna move in that direction, but um and then the other thing though, is that, um, and I've seen this time and time again, like we started descriptions for authors group on Facebook um, and we've kept it on Facebook. And meanwhile, like here I am talking about building your own platform. You know, on the outside, you might think that's very hypocritical, but um, I study very closely other startups that try and build tools for creators to build CUNY. And I'm not talking Discord, I'm talking Geneva, Mighty Networks, Circle, there's a long list. and 
most of them have had to pivot towards providing education, uh, like where their tools for course creators, very high budget, high friction products that are capturing like a very small percentage of someone's total base. And those are the ones who are successfully migrating to these platforms. They haven't become like general use case community platforms. And I don't see them making that switch. Like that was their vision, but usage is so low. Like where, yeah, you get a hundred people to join Geneva. That sounds great, but only 20 open it. So even if everyone gets the message, most aren't opening it. Everyone's opening Facebook every day. The whole world's addicted to Facebook. Um, so the odds of your message reaching them, even with algorithmic suppression on Facebook and the feed being an absolute mess is higher. Now, the only caveat to that is that Discord is a little bit different. Discord has been around for 10 years, has become very habitual to a large portion of the population, and is definitely a, a, a one of the default CUNY platforms at this point. It's the only competitor Facebook groups has, um, I think, truly. I mean, there's other people who try, but they're doing nothing like it. Um, the only downside to Discord is that I would say there's definitely a generational difference there because basically Discord saw that like Facebook conquered CUNY among everyone on Facebook, but people under 30 don't use Facebook. And a lot of people under 35 don't use Facebook ever at all. So then they came in and basically built Facebook groups, um, but better and starting with the gaming niche. I mean, it's a whole history to it, right? But mm -hmm. what you need to know is that um, for a lot of authors, their readers aren't on Discord because your readers are older 40 plus, and they haven't moved to Discord yet. So you're having the same problem that the Genevas of the world face, that the Circle and the Mighty Networks face. And they spent tens of millions of dollars on this problem and didn't solve it. So I don't think you're going to solve it either. Um, that it's sounds pessimistic, best. but it, it's interesting. I, you have, you have I to get know. it. <laughs> I get yeah. it. It's kind of what I'm seeing. And I'm like, I just kind of wanted to poke your brain. Like, I guess I'm just kind of like here where, and where, where something they like are. Reem is, is a little different is like kind of like these course platforms, right? Like how these other platforms have solved the problem of like bringing people over the CUNY is they're now going after educators and building like a vertical software for them where everything's there. And that's what Ream kind of, you could think of its analogy, what it's moving into is that for, for reading and for an author to be able to build their own platform. It's the tool to build your own platform, right? Uh, but one, Ream's not there yet, like mm. feature wise to do that in the next, you know, three months. Um, and uh, it's still not a bad thing to be on Facebook. Um, I'm not like against Facebook. So yeah, I mean, that my long answer is like, you have to think about the purpose of direct sales. And a lot of people are like, oh, I want it on my own website. And I'm very much like, no, no, no. We're talking about data ownership relationship. But the key word that stops everything is friction. And it's really, there's a lot of friction for people going to your own website, learning a new UI each time. I mean, think about the conversion rate there. Um, this is why direct sales is, I think, you know, we have to be very careful when we define it. And it's why, um, you know, it's been possible for years and yeah, more people are doing it now because they're pissed off at Amazon, but do we really think that's going to like solve all of our problems? Um, so watch out because a lot of people will parade direct sales, direct sales, direct sales, but what are they really talking about? Um, and what are they really focused on in terms of the reader experience? You know, building your own community on your site sounds great, but who the heck is going to go type in your site into their browser and just visit your site only for your community? Like that's really different. Um, that's not something that really happens often at all. Um, and we have passed web 1.0. And I don't see us going back to that age. Um, so, you you know, readers and people in general have shown unbelievable propensity 
to want to have, you know, everything in one easy place. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't fight the tide of consumer behavior. Uh, people have spent billions of dollars trying to beat Facebook and have lost. Um, I'm not saying that you then can't beat Facebook in a different way, but you have to be then very careful about like all the things we talked about, friction, discovery, like what are you really doing here? Um, and I'm again, reticent uh, that, you know, we should all go off and build our own CUNY on our own website and that that's going to, you know, be better. Is it going to really be a better experience for your readers? And is it going to be better for your business? If you can still capture the data and you are, and you're still building a direct relationship with them through email, I don't see the necessity for it. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong in five years, but I don't think I will be. So in short, don't panic. You're okay. Like the, the world's changing. But, yeah. The world's changing, but it's not changing as much as you think. Like, like the industry is changing. Sure. But a lot of people who are like trying to make it sound like everything's shifting forever, you know, are, are probably doing it for other reasons. Um, and when you actually look at the data, it's quite, yeah, you know, you just have to question it. Thank you. That's the one thing that's changed in the last year since we started the subscription thing. We started, no one was talking about it. Now everyone talks about it. It's like, well, wait, what are we really talking about here? Um, and I've seen it so many times. People, you know, obsess over like the customization and this and that. And then I just go back to, wait, are you thinking about a 10% thing or a 10X thing? Because if you're thinking about a 10% thing and you're not making like tons of money where 10% even matters to you, like just stop thinking about it. And this is one of those cases, like stop thinking about it. Like you ultimately it's about creating a great experience to your readers. All of it's marginal at the end of the day, but what's easiest for you? If you hate Facebook with every bone in your body, don't do it. Like that's, that's, but that's, that's why you're not doing it. But if you don't mind Facebook and you're just thinking about not doing it, because maybe there's a tool out there that's 10% better. No, no, you don't need to think about it like that because that time that you're thinking about it, you're best thinking about another story. That's just truth. Um, but it's a great question. And I did have hot thoughts on it. Um, so in short, I, you know, you have to think about, you know, where people are already spending their time and making things as frictionless as possible for them to participate in what you're doing. That's the core thesis, the core fundamental thing. That doesn't mean everyone should be on Facebook though, because a lot of people should be on other platforms because their readers aren't on Facebook. That's totally like, what's interesting is like, we've noticed over time as subscriptions for authors community has grown, uh, I would estimate now about like one to 2% of the people in the group never used Facebook before joining our group, which is actually a cool moment, but it's like, as you reach different audiences, you realize like, oh, this actually isn't the best software for them, but it still is for 85% of our authors. So it's still working for us and we're still going to use it. Um, but you kind of have to take that same approach with your readers. Um, and I'm all for simplifying things. Like, like I said, 10% versus 10x. Um, and, uh, we spend too much thinking about the 10%. I'm having fun, but does anyone have any more questions? I can't believe there's still 16 of you here or 15 of you here. What are you doing? <laughs> Let's do one last question. Does anyone have one last question I'm using? Then we can call it a day to be about anything.
No, nothing. You all, have, you all perfectly ready to go conquer the world, storytellers for the world. You ready? That's good. If that's where we're at, that's good. I'm happy. That's where I wanted to leave it at. Okay. No one, no one has any, like, I'm not missing anything from anyone. No questions or nothing. I was definitely in an excited mood today. So I hope you all enjoyed. Um, uh, I will see you all at next month's Fireside Chat. It'll be the first Friday of the month in October. We're going to be talking all about book clubs, um, subscriptions for book clubs, which will be fun and different. Um, and then I think we're going to be doing retention sometime in November. Um, and then December, I have no idea what we're doing in December. That's a little bit too far out for me. Um, if you all want to download the book, if you haven't yet, that link is right here. Um, you should download it, read it. Let me know what you think. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll probably get back to talking about subscriptions for authors. Uh, you won't hear much more about the creator economy from me for a while. So I hope you enjoyed this like special little, little, little treats um, and some thoughts, but you know, you can reach out to me anytime. Always here to help. Um, yes. Yes. You can watch other fireside chats. I should have like, I always forget. Um, Maddie, we have a lot of, of things to watch. So if you will, if you want to have like, I've got your weekend planned out. Um, I've got your weekend and your next weekend and your next weekend and your next weekend planned out. Um, so on the descriptions for author's site, uh, we have all of our materials that you can find. This link specifically is to the fireside chats. I think we have 13 up um, that we've done like this similar format. Um, actually, this is the only one that we've done without slides, um, uh, which we'll see. I, I might have slides in the future. Um, uh, and we have a podcast. Uh, I think a few of you here, Shelby, Avon, maybe others too. No, I think just you two. We're actually on the podcast. Um, you, your apps are incredible. You both are amazing. Um, so you can go watch watch that. Um, there's a lot of episodes. Uh then there's a book all about subscriptions for authors, which you can also download for free um, and an audiobook that you can listen to for free. Um, so there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to dive into. Most of it's focused on subscriptions. Um, I should say all of it's focused on subscriptions, but you will get a lot of general tidbits and nuggets in there. Um, and in the future, you'll probably see another one like this from me. Uh, my next book, which I will write at some point is going to be focused on mindset. I, I have three more books that I want to write. And then I will never write another nonfiction book for authors. Sorry, uh, that'll be my, that'll be my, I'm done. I've, I've done what I need to do. Uh, I want to write a book called Sovereign, The Sovereign Author, which I've started working on. Then I want to write a book called Readers First, which will be all about building CUNY and how to market and build a publishing business that is Readers First. Um, and then my last book will be called The Author CEO, which will be, a lot of like my business management tips and advice for people. That'll come out of like the next three years. Don't rush me. It's going to take time. Uh, it'll marinate and I'll learn more and I'll share with you. Um, so maybe the next time we have a talk like this will be when Sovereign Author comes out. We'll have to see. Um, but if any of you are at NINC this week, um, I'll be there at NINC. I'll be giving a slightly similar talk um, uh, on the creator economy, 10 steps into the creator economy. Um, so I hope to see you there. Um, 
and uh yeah uh that's that's it i have to say goodbye now um i hope you all have a great weekend i hope you all have an amazing week ahead we'll see y'all soon and don't forget storytellers rule the world okay